Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice, calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will, in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Kyle Pietrantonio, your co-host and the executive director of Duke and Altam Schools. And I'm Father Randy Sly, and today we will be talking with Father Robert Spitzer, a Catholic priest in the Jesuit order and president of the Magis Center in Garden Grove, California. And this will actually be the first of two interviews that we have uh, with him. Father Spitzer served as president of Gonzaga University from 1998 to 2009, where he significantly increased their programs and curricula in faith, ethics, service, and leadership. He also led the efforts to build 20 new facilities, increase the student population by 75%, and raise more than $200 million in scholarships and capital projects. Prior to his time at Gonzaga, uh, Father Spitzer began his career in education at St. Louis University, continued at Seattle University as an instructor of philosophy, and an assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. He then proceeded to Seattle University, where he was tenured as an associate professor of philosophy in 1996. Uh, Father Spitzer received a Bachelor of Business Administration degree from Gonzaga. Uh, he earned a master's degree in philosophy from St. Louis University, a Master of Divinity degree from Gregorian University in Rome, a Master of Theology degree in Scripture from the Boston College School of Theology uh, and Ministry, and also a Doctor of Philosophy degree from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Father Spitzer has made many TV appearances, including the Larry King Live Show, the Today Show, History Channel, PBS, and the Hugh Hewitt Program. And he currently appears weekly on EWTN in Father Spitzer's universe. Uh, universe. So, Father, so great to have you with us. It's a joy to have you on the program. Oh, and really my honor, uh, Father Andy, and uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Father Spitzer, we're so glad you could join us uh, today. Uh, we always like to begin our episodes with our guests uh, having the opportunity to share a bit about their own upbringing. Uh, so would you be so kind to, to share a bit about that part of, of your journey? Yes, um, uh, I, uh, well, I grew up with a, a wonderful daily communicant mother um, who very much instilled her faith and her devotion uh, into all of us. I, 
you know, uh, like many people, uh, uh, I when I was going to latter part of high school, you know, I, I had a lot of questions that needed answering. Um, and so uh, in my collegiate career, I got the answers to those questions by uh, divine providence. And uh, I began to see very clearly at that time, that was just the beginning of the singularity equations with uh, Hawking and Penrose and so forth. And so I was able to to get a lot of answers to those questions. And um, not only in my physics uh, uh, you know, um, encounters, but also uh, in a metaphysics class uh, with proofs for the existence of God, things of that nature. And finally, of course, I uh, was able to uh, uh, you know, go on a retreat and, um, you know, a search retreat. And then that was followed up by uh, um, a, um, uh, uh, what might be called a silent Ignatian retreat. It was kind of the five day version of it. And that really got me thinking. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But a, a real turning point for me was in my uh, freshman year, deciding to go to daily mass. And I got hooked on it. And I kept going and I think the Lord transformed my heart through his heart uh, in Holy Communion. And that was pretty much, uh, uh, as they say, uh, um, he uh, brought me out into the desert and I let myself be brought out. <laughs> well, Father, what uh, what influences led you to become a Jesuit and enter into the priesthood? Um, there were several of them. I mean, most of them obviously were good Jesuits. The fact that Jesuits were uh, very much... Um, involved in academic life. And I felt early on a call to uh, to teaching, a call to the, the academic life. I, I had recognized, um, even at the beginning of my Gonzaga experience, um, uh, I recognized I had a, a gift for uh, teaching, a gift for uh, speaking. And, and so, um, uh, um, you know, it was kind of central to things, but I didn't have to have it. But I thought, you know, this would be a very good use of my gifts. And the Jesuits had a lot of universities, and I thought that might be a, a really appropriate attitude. But um, the second biggest influence, besides just the apostolic part, was St. Ignatius of Loyola, to be honest with you. Uh, reading his autobiography, uh, for me, was a real turning point. And uh, that autobiography was given to me. And uh, as I read through what this guy did after his conversion, I thought, my gosh, you know, this is this is a bundle of focused energy, and he, he is, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, he just moves and and uh, gets things done. And so um, I thought, oh man, this is I'd really like to follow him. And then finally, of course, uh, um, meeting some really great Jesuits, including the great Father Gerard Steckler, um, when I was at Gonzaga, he was a historian, um, but. Um, uh, I just saw the the sense in what he was saying, and I loved his ecclesiology, and then the daily mass, and all of these things kind of funneled together. And um, I, the summer before I entered the Jesuits, I I went um, to a a course uh, um, that was sponsored in Spain, Escoria S El Escorial, Spain, and um, when I got over there, uh, I, I had classes from Fritz Wilhelmsen from uh, Joseph Pieper and from uh, Bertrand de Marjorie and uh, began to think, you know, our Catholic faith goes much deeper than even I could have conceived of it after uh, getting what I would call a good, you know, uh, Catholic uh, collegiate education. And so I thought, wow, um, this is truly, it had my heart on fire and 
uh, the rest, as they say, is history. You've had so many varied areas of of interest of interest, Father Spitzer, uh, from ethics and morality to philosophy and the physical sciences. If you had not followed uh, the call to priesthood, what career path were you considering uh, discerning? Uh, well, basically, my father had his own law firm in uh, Honolulu. Um, I had already, you know, he had told me, you know, well, uh, that one of the majors he would like me to have uh, would be an accounting major uh, simply because of its usefulness in corporate law. And I thought that was a wise choice of career for me previously. Um, you know, obviously he had a law firm, which uh, I could have fit into. Um, you know, when I did my internships in public accounting, I, I very much liked it. Um, but I knew that my um principal you know interest was not going to be in the accounting so much as in the uh, the corporate law area uniform commercial code those kinds of things and as i said the the you know the gift of the gab plus the uh, the interest in the contracts uh, um seemed to be a good fit um but as i became more and more interested in my religion by the time i was at the beginning of my senior year um, my religion was the most important thing to me in the whole wide world. Um, and uh, I could have never imagined that happening to me at the beginning of my uh, of my um, collegiate life. I mean, I just, my priorities were not there. I was going to mass and then later started going to daily mass, but um, I, my priorities just weren't there. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, I find myself, as they say, uh, wooed out into the desert and... Uh, <laughs> And I followed uh, all too willingly, and I sure am glad I did because I couldn't have had a happier, more, um, you know, very, very uh, beneficial life that, that really served people, not just in this world, but eternally. And, and that, for me, made all the difference. I mean, I, I truly couldn't have imagined a, a better life, a more meaningful life, a more uh, not just purposeful life, but one that, that really you know, brought joy in the midst of the purpose. Of course, there are challenges and crosses uh, one has to deal with, and university presidencies can bring a few of those on. Um, but uh, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, it's been a great life. Well, we're certainly glad you said yes, Father, because <laughs> the body of work that you've produced have been such a uh, an amazing contribution to uh, not only uh, our uh, contemporary Catholic faith, but also uh, just uh, our faith and culture in in general. And today, now we're we're really wanting to focus a lot on uh, faith and science, uh, which uh, many in our modern culture feel cannot coexist. And in fact, uh, it seems now that that when someone says "I believe in science," they are sometimes using it as a renunciation of their faith that science is replacing God. Uh, what would you say to someone today who has accepted the claim that that science is kind of usurped God in the marketplace? Well, <clears throat> I would say that they're certainly running contrary to where the scientists themselves are. I mean, today, uh, the recent uh, Pew survey poll um, that uh, looked at the uh, scientists 
um, uh, in the American Association for the Advancement of Science. That's, you know, that's the biggest, one of the biggest scientific organizations in the world. Um, they basically did a survey and found that 51% of the scientists um, were declared themselves, excuse me, to be either believers in God or a higher transcendent power, but basically theists. Um, uh, and uh, 41% declared themselves uh, to be either agnostic or uh, atheist, kind of split down the middle, about 21% agnostic and 20% atheist. Well, most kids, of course, have the view that most scientists are, are atheists. So um, all of a sudden you find out, well, wait a minute, 51% overall declare themselves to be believers in God. Only you know 20% declare themselves to be atheists. Uh, they're obviously, they've got their facts wrong. And so our first thing is to get that cured, but then to look at the young scientists. So the Pew survey also did the uh, survey of the young scientists in which a supermajority, 66%, of the under 35 young scientists uh, declared themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Uh, only 15, uh, I'm sorry, 16% declared themselves to be agnostic, 15% atheists. So, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, if you're looking at the scientific community itself and the doctors, I mean, that's even more uh, clear, right? 76% of doctors declare themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Uh, it's like 12.1% declare themselves to be agnostic, 11% or something like that uh, declare themselves uh, to be um, uh, uh, atheists. And uh, of that uh, group, by the way, just to let you know, of all the doctors, 74% um, believe in miracles past and present. Wow. So. Yeah, I'd say that's a providential God, not just a deistic God. And so what you're really dealing with here is a complete shift in the scientific community. Yet people like Dawkins uh, continue to, uh, you know, roll on with their, uh, you know, God delusion website and things of that nature. But Dawkins himself has changed his mind, right? He said recently he's no longer an atheist. He's an agnostic. <clears throat> because his curiosity has now trumped his skepticism. Well, if that's the case, I think it's time for him to take down that website. And that would be an honorable <laughs> thing to do, since it really reflects where he is in his own life. Father Spitzer, the beginning of the universe is especially a point of contention again, with many in our culture who see that God uh, was not involved or a higher power could not be involved. What might we say as Christians to address that contention? Well, there are three things that mitigate against it uh, hugely. I mean, the first thing is the what's called the Board of Lincoln and Guth theorem, which shows that um, every accelerating universal or multiversal system uh, is going to have to have a beginning. So if you have what we call a, um, you know, a Hubble expansion rate, but um, that just means the overall rate of expansion of a universe or a multiverse as a whole, that if the multiverse has, to exp um, has a rate of expansion greater than zero, that would require a beginning. 
So um, that would include like our universe, if there is a multiverse, would also include a multiverse, um, also include a string uh, theory um, universe where you get the higher dimensional spaces of string theory kind of popping out esoteric kinds of universes. All of these things in some form or another uh, require um, you know, a beginning. And a beginning, of course, implies a, a creator. So um, that was the first thing that came out. When I debated Stephen Hawking on the Larry King show a while back, that was in 2010, um, his view still was that a creator was not necessary. But in 2018, um, you know, uh, Hawking himself, he was basically looking at um, uh, gravitational wave perturbation, the possibility of a, a fractal multiverse and a variety of other things, basically came up with uh, his final article in the journal, um, uh, final scholarly article, scientific article in the Journal of High Energy Physics in 2018. And in that article, it, which was, by the way, entitled A Smooth Exit from Eternal, circle that word, eternal inflation. And what he did there was he showed the virtual impossibility that our universe, uh, with the dynamics that it has, the separation between quantum physics and classical physics that it has, and uh, the absence of any kind of fractal, um, you know, semblances in our universe pretty much means that uh, we couldn't have been generated by an infinite multiverse at all uh, with eternal inflation. There would have to have even a beginning of uh, a very kind of abstract structure like a fractal multiverse. Uh, so once that happened. And then once the Boltzmann brain problem came into being, the Boltzmann brain problem just simply is this. Uh, I, you know, I can, if you go to the Maja Center website, majacenter.com, you can see all this. But basically, if there really was an infinite multiverse, every one of us around the world, almost a 100% chance, every one of us around the world would not be the organic life form we perceive ourselves to be, uh, we would actually be uh, uh, Boltzmann brains that fluctuated into existence in trillions upon trillions of thermal vacuums that are much more, right, uh, they're much easier to exist in a universe like our own. In fact, they're 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 122 more um, uh, uh, likely to um, uh, exist than that means a virtual impossibility that we'd be anything other than than Boltzmann brains. So we all ought to be Boltzmann brains. Well, tell you what, scientists don't like that. They don't like saying that they're Boltzmann brains that fluctuated into existence with full memories of themselves being in an organic and biological, physical universe like the one we perceive ourselves to be in. And so they basically reject it. So to make a long story short, what we're dealing with um, is when all the evidence started kind of lining up. Uh, now today, a lot of scientists just simply say there's a strong likelihood of a beginning. And then the occurrence of low entropy at the beginning of uh, our uh, universe, we had exceedingly low entropy. Um, we need low entropy so that we can have viable physical systems in our universe. And um, it just so happens that at the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, we had exceedingly low entropy. The odds against it are 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1 against. Well, what does that mean? 
that's the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare perfectly by random tapping of the keys in a single try. Uh, how did we get that happening in our universe by pure chance? The answer is not a chance. I mean, it's just a, almost a flat-out zero um, possibility of that happening. So if uh, we're dealing with a flat-out zero of, of our universe happening by pure chance, and the multiverse, according to Stephen Hawking, not only has to have a beginning, but a very small number of bubble universes, most of which are very much like our own, if that is the case, then what we're dealing with is the most probable, reasonable explanation for the fine-tuning for life in our universe that we have, which is so vastly improbable, like low entropy at the beginning of our universe, the, the most reasonable explanation is a creator, a very intelligent creator. And it's for reasons such as these that Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle, who you know was the father of stellar nucleosynthesis, he basically comes out and says, right, uh, um, this, this would be... Uh, um, you know, a few years ago now, he said, well, you know, I, I don't think that there are really any blind forces worth speaking about. It seems to me that the numbers that we are speaking about here are so vast that there must be some super calculating, super intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this to be, well, beyond uh, the shadow of a doubt. Now you'd say, well, that's all very complicated stuff. How can we as Christians, how do we respond to somebody who says, well, the universe doesn't need uh, creation? I think we can say four things uh, in answer to your question. Number one, the Bordevalenkin and Guth theorem. And they'll say, well, what's that? You know, just say, go to the Magis Center website and read all about it. This shows that every single system we know of, multiverses and string universes included, has to have a beginning. Number two, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. And that basically means that the universe is going to wind down. And at the end of the day, not just our universe is going to wind down. Frankly, a multiverse is going to wind down. All physical systems that we know of. Uh, it, it, you know, are going to wind down so that the universe or the system or the multiverse becomes basically a dead system which can't do anything. Well, our universe is far from anything like a dead system that can't do anything. So that clearly indicates there's going to have to be some finite uh, age limit to the universe. Then, of course, the Boltzmann brain problem pretty much eliminates the fact of a, you know, a postulate of an infinite multiverse anyway. And then, of course, Stephen Hawking's uh, evidence now that's added to the formula uh, that caused him to switch. You just say, OK, add up Board of Lincoln and Guth theorem, entropy evidence, um, the Boltzmann brain problem and Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog's last article. And all I can tell you is it adds up to a big, huge thing, a creator. And the low entropy of our universe and all the other fine-tuning constants that are uh, also postulated by it means that it's not going to be explained by a multiverse because the multiverse will be too small to explain these fine-tuning coincidences. The most reasonable and responsible explanation is not just a creator, but a very, very smart creator. And as I said, Hoyle said at the end of the day, I consider this to be beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, that um, that there is some kind of super calculating, super intellect 
that's monkeyed with the constants of physics, chemistry, and biology. He, he once compared, he said, you know, the odds of us having an abundance of carbon in our universe by pure chance is like a tornado sweeping through a junkyard, assembling a Boeing 747 ready for flight. So anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's maybe the, I know it's technical, but, you know, there's just a ton of evidence and they can certainly go to, you know, modjacenter.com. I also have a high school curriculum, middle school curriculum uh, that has a bunch of videos attached to it. Uh, just tell them to go to video number two. And I, I go through this uh, in video number two. It's, it's a 30 minute video. It's a little long, but uh, we show it to the students who, you know, use our curriculum. And uh, pretty much it's, uh, um, you know, when they see it, they may not understand all of it, but they know one thing. The significance of it is that, yeah, there's a lot of evidence out there which explains why young scientists are 66% theists and scientists overall are 51% theists, which is far, far greater than the um, 15% of, uh, of uh, scientists that are atheists uh, in the uh, young scientist category and the 20% of uh, scientists overall uh, that are uh, atheists in the overall category. So anyway, I, I leave it at that. And uh, I'll just say uh, um, the evidence is there. Uh, if people want it um, uh, to, to look at it, just uh, take a look at those videos or uh, you know, take a look at our website, modjacenter.com. Uh, it's explained there in videos and explained there in text as well. And you can get access to all the articles from the journals of physics uh, that I use. So if you're really a, a science guy, uh, just go there. And if you go down to the footnotes in those articles, uh, the actual um, URLs are there. You can click on them and get direct access to, for example, the, the article of Arvind Borda, Alexander Vilenkin, and, and, uh, and Alan Guth on uh, the beginning of all uh, uh, expanding systems. You know, it's interesting, Father, that in this time where you've got so much uh, proof, so many ways in which we can approach these issues of faith, and yet we find ourselves in uh, what uh, Gallup and Pew and others are calling the age of the nuns, N-O-N-E-N-S, yeah. the uh, ones who've become religiously unaffiliated or uninterested. And this mm -hmm. seems to be kind of an increasing thing within our culture. Yeah. Uh, and it's especially hard for for young people. I spent some time as a high school president and just watching their lifelessness in terms yeah. of the issues of faith. Uh, what can we do to kind of keep our young people engaged in in uh, this uh, idea of uh, their life in Christ, their faith in God, uh, and in their involvement in the church. Yeah, um, can I do some self selfish advertising here? Self interested advertising. Oh, absolutely! Because I have a feeling I know where you're going. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, I, first thing I would say is if you've got students in a classroom, um, I, I just a, a religious ed classroom. So if you're in a Catholic high school or middle school. We have a middle school curriculum called Speak the Faith. Um, it's actually a program. We put it in the communication arts area because we wanted a speech course, of course, uh, uh, to be done. But we also 
um, uh, are doing um, a high school course. As you know, in the um, elective year, there's no prescribed uh, theology courses. There's just, uh, you know, elective courses that are permitted by the USCCB. Well, we have one such uh, elective course called the Catholic Faith and Science. It's for a senior year. It could be either for first semester or second semester. But um, if there's just one teacher in the school that is willing to do this once or twice a year on a semester basis uh, for those students, I will guarantee that those students will be the next generation of leaders um, within their college uh, communities and within their parishes going forward. And the reason is, is if you look at those surveys that you were just uh, quoting, Father Randy, um, the principal reason, according to the 2016 Pew survey, in other words, of the 42% of our church-going kids who will leave, 50% um, uh, of them will leave for only one reason. They believe there's no evidence for God from science and that faith and science are contradictory. And as you put it, uh, science is truth. Therefore, um, uh, faith is um, contradictory and, uh, and uh, obviously false. That's their view. Now, you can one course later, like, you know, the Catholic faith and science, just having this course, if one teacher uh, alone implements it for, let's say, 25 students or whatever, if one teacher um, uh, implements it, I'm telling you, you will create 25 leaders. I'll show you the qualitative evidence. Uh, we, we've beta tested it in New York City and in Staten Island, New York, et cetera. And if you look at this, it's very clear. They move from, as you put it, eyes rolling, lethargy in the classroom. Do I have to go through yet another religion course? Now I'm going to be encouraged in the spirituality that I don't believe in. They believe the cultural propaganda so deeply that you got to nip it in the bud. And one way of putting an exocet missile into the whole cultural project is this course, Catholic Faith and Science, or for the middle school students, Speak the Faith. And the main thing, uh, um, if you look at it, uh, is it just attacks all the cultural myths, starting with, well, who are these scientists anyway? Are they really atheists, as everybody says? You know, is Dawkins really right in his God delusion? You know, is uh, are you kidding me? Do you know um, credible scientists? Well, uh, we'll get, we're going to line up 20 credible uh, physicists here, the very, very best in the world, who are going to tell you very differently. And so we go through the entire, um, you know, sequence of these things. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's really pretty uh, remarkable uh, what the uh, turnaround is with these students. Like I said, you're not, you know, to, you know, you can use our seven essential modules and plug a few of these modules into a theology course in the freshman, sophomore, junior year. That's fine. But, you know, that's going to be one or two classes. If you really want to take that uh, student give them a one semester class, whether in middle school or of course the senior year of high school would be ideal because then they become leaders. They not only are going to get enough information to defend their faith and maintain it, they're going to get enough information. I mean, we go through not just, you know, the faith in science, for example, what I was doing today. We do it in an age appropriate way. We do it in that um, area of faith and physics. 
We also do it with near-death experiences and uh, the um, the afterlife. And today, right, the New York Academy of Sciences in 2022, in their article, they published an article <clears throat> in their uh, proceedings, and basically shows the strong likelihood that your consciousness will survive your physical death. Man, you would have never gotten an article from the New York Academy of Sciences in that regard, even 15 years ago. Today, I mean, it's just a done deal because there's so many good peer-reviewed articles showing that your soul is likely to leave your body. It's likely to see everything that's going on around it. It can even proceed outside of the hospital walls and describe perfectly everything that's going on as the train passes by. By the way, uh, I can tell you this right now, 81% of blind people, most of whom are blind from birth, will see for the first time when they are sitting there dead, flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex. They're sitting there dead, um, you know, um, on the operating table. They're going, the blind person, little Brad Burroughs there, is going right out. He's a 16-year-old blind person, never saw a thing in his life, goes out and describes the entire scene outside the hospital, a train passing by with a big, huge sign with an arrow pointing to the right, and the train actually goes off to the right into a grove of trees. I mean, it's just uh, absolutely unbelievable. Could not be done unless... Brad was standing outside the hospital when he was dead and trains have train schedules and Brad's uh, heart attack has a schedule. I mean, it's all timed out perfectly. So you can, you start looking at these kinds of things. Physicalist explanations aren't going to do the trick. Materialist explanations aren't going to do the trick. So it, we, we just start there. We go to the evidence for God from a uh, contemporary physics and cosmology. Then we go to Jesus. Because, as you know, the 1988 carbon dating has been completely debunked uh, from four different vantage points. But the most important of which is the wide angle X-ray um, uh, scattering uh, test that was recently peer reviewed. Um, and um, that uh, by Liberato Di Caro and the National Italian uh, Laboratories guys. And they basically showed uh, not only that, um, you know, Dr. Tristan Casabianca in, in archaeometry at Oxford there uh, showed that... Um, that uh, it was, um, uh, you know, that test uh, couldn't possibly have dated uh, the sample to the Middle Ages with any accuracy, since there was so much heterogeneity and, you know, vari uh, variation and, and um, uh, stratification in the data, the raw data, the, the, the statistical analysis said, this, this doesn't show anything. So um, the, the fact is the 1988 uh, carbon dating is gone. The um, wide-angle X-ray scattering test has shown that the very likely date of the shroud's origin is between 54 to 75 A.D. Uh, with uh, a 95% confidence level, plus or minus 100 years. Well, that's really close. 54 to 75, yeah. that's really close to 33 A.D. And we're honing in on it by a, a test that doesn't have any carbon variables in it. Like the shroud was caught in a fire of Chambéry, just for starters. You know, talk about carbon emissions and C14 being embedded in the clock. All I can say is uh, that 1988 carbon dating is debunked. But once you start looking at that shroud of Turin, and you see the accuracy of the Gospels, right, relative to uh, um, the crucifixion account. And every respect from the crowning of the thorns to the spear in the side to the blood and the water emerging. I mean, right there, you can see the, the pleural fluid, which looks clear, and the blood right near the exit wound from the spear uh, between the fifth and the sixth uh, ribs with an elliptical style uh, wound 
produced by a legion Roman uh, Roman legionary spear. You can pretty much get the point that this is a great verification of the accuracy of the Gospels relative to Christ's crucifixion. But the real deal, the thing that really makes the biggest difference of all, is the evidence for the resurrection embedded on the shroud. And it is clear to these students that, hey, wait a minute, you're never getting an impression like this without an exceedingly powerful burst of radiation. And that exceedingly powerful burst of radiation cannot last for but more than like one forty billionth of a second. But it would require, if we were to artificially produce it, every ARF eczema laser system. In fact, it would require every ultraviolet um, uh, radiation um, source that we have in every laboratory in the world today in order to produce the image on that shroud with three-dimensional precision imaging. And then, of course, the body did turn mechanically transparent. That is to say, it turned spiritual. And this begins to sound very much like the gospel accounts of Jesus, right? They think they're seeing a spirit. Uh, you know, they, Jesus is going through closed walls and doors, et cetera, et cetera. And you can pretty much see that um, uh, what you have here is a huge burst of light, a boom. Uh, the body literally in the process of... Um, uh, transmission uh, into a spiritual body is leaving behind this huge neutron flux, beta deuteron uh, and uh, proton flux. And so all of these things are happening uh, simultaneously um, with the boom and the light. And at the end of the day, uh, we are left with the most amazing picture, a very precise three-dimensional image uh, on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. Well, when we get through explaining that and explaining the fact that the only way you could, you know, dead bodies do not leave off huge bursts of radiation, simultaneous, you know, low temperature nuclear explosion, where all the, all the particles in the entire body are literally disintegrating simultaneously. Hey, there's seven octillion, um, you know, uh, uh, atoms, you know, seven octillion uh, stable atomic nuclei uh, in that body. It's like a trillion, 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 trillion you know, a stable atomic nuclei. And they're all simultaneously going to undergo low temperature nuclear disintegration, leaving this image, perfect, precise image on the shroud. Uh, I don't think so. So uh, what would you call that, you guys? Oh, that sounds like a miracle. Indeed, it is <laughs> a miracle beyond belief that gives us an impression of Jesus' movement from you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a physical body to his spiritual body. And by the way, we do all the Eucharistic miracles too. The scientific data for the Eucharistic miracles is overwhelming. So I mean, hey, if, if people want a curriculum, you know, just to teach their students in the senior year or in middle school, either one. If you want a curriculum that will do this, I mean, the Eucharistic miracles, the Shroud of Turin, the, um, um, the, the uh, 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 evidence for God from science, uh, the near-death experiences and the, uh, you know, the uh, probability of, of consciousness surviving bodily death. You want all that evidence plus the theological underpinnings of it, plus the comparison of the uh, gospel accounts of Jesus's resurrection uh, to all of these uh, things. If you want all of this, uh, you know, put out there, um, you know, in a, in a good, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, age appropriate way with all the graphics, you know, and of course videos from yours truly uh, present throughout the entire thing. 
um, my thought would be go to uh, uh, Sophia Institute for Teachers and just check out the website for the Catholic Faith and Science. That's the senior year elective. And um, check out um, uh, Speak the Faith. That's for the middle school students um, on the Sophia uh, website. Father, thank you for sharing that. I mean, this seems like it would be something many, many uh, DIA schools would be interested in adopting if they haven't already. What have you seen as some of the most promising and hopeful signs, uh, at least across the country in Catholic ed, uh, that are doing really an excellent job with the integration of faith and science? Are there particular dioceses at large that are adopting uh, this curricula, or um, what are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, right now we, uh, you know, we just started marketing this curriculum for the high school students. Uh, we have about 69 uh, schools that are um, just very recently that, that signed on to our thing. But, you know, we're hoping we can do well over 100 schools signing on a year, um, you know, figuring that maybe, you know, 25 to 30 students per school or perhaps more will do it. But we're trying to create a critical mass of student leaders going forward who not only can mm -hmm. defend their faith and be confident about their faith, but be mm -hmm. leaders in the collegiate setting as well as in their parishes later. That's a good thing. But another good sign is Duke and Altum itself, ICLE, uh, right, Institute of Catholic Liberal Education itself, uh, now Adeo Dadas. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's these organizations for classical uh, education, organizations for good, um, you know, open uh, spiritual, uh, I mean, uh, uh, science uh, education that are, you know, taking off uh, like a rocket ship. Uh, so that's a second thing. Now we're getting uh, science teachers like Dr. Martin Linway, uh, who want to integrate uh, this into their science classes, uh, as well as doing it for the religion classes, right? So Dr. Martin Linway um, uh, teaches at the, Benedict, the Cleveland Benedictine um, High School there. Uh, he's a physics chem teacher. But basically, he's teaching this course, um, and he integrates uh, all of these things into it. And um, in that class, you can see a variety of different um, uh, things um, uh, that, you know, he takes up the physics evidence that I just talked about. He also does the Shroud stuff, um, you know, in the physics of the Shroud stuff. He also does the Eucharistic Miracles. And, uh, you know, one of uh, his, uh, Dr. Linway's students actually went to, to Williams College uh, for his undergrad. And he says, you know, I'm out here uh, basically uh, defending uh, the faith from the content uh, in your class, Dr. Linway, he wrote, wrote a letter to him and he said, I just want to let you know, I learned more religion in my science classes than I did in my religion classes. And that's <laughs> what enables me to be a leader. So to have the science classes now starting, to, the science teachers uh, doing this is a real a gift, but we really need the religion teachers to do it. Just anybody, you know, there, there's there's a video for all of the lessons. So there's 20, 20 minute videos to start uh, things off with. Uh, some of the videos are about 30 minutes, but you play those things and then you can discuss it. You can, all the, the exercises are there. Sophia Institute for Teachers put together all the lesson plans. I mean, it's, it's almost done for you. Uh, practically. And so the same with the middle school uh, courses. So our objective is basically to, to get the students um, into a position, not just where they can help um, in themselves, but help others. That's the main thing now. 
uh, because we got to create a core group of defenders. As I said, 50% of all the kids that are going to leave the church, and not only that, leave belief in God, have one big reason. They believe faith and science is contradictory, which is crazy. In this century, it's the exact opposite. So we got to get the word out. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you know, and Catholic schools can do it. But there's all kinds of signs of hope. I get tons of uh, teachers who say, hey, you know, I'm using your modules in my classes. And these are seventh grade teachers, eighth grade teachers, ninth grade teachers, 10th, 11th grade teachers. Uh, I know the 11th grade is mostly moral theology, but nevertheless, I've got them all up and down the board, including the senior year. And so our hope is to just get that one step further into that one semester class. Using modules is a good thing. Absolutely put it in your ninth, 10th, or 11th grade class. But get a one semester class. Start developing the next generation of leaders. Help those college students, like those kids at Williams College that are being affected by this kid, et cetera. Um, just, just uh, we're trying our very best to, to, to transition it that way. But there's lots of signs of hope. And by the way, another great sign of hope is the number of young scientists who on mm-hmm. their own are embracing faith. The number of new doctors or on their own embracing faith. And that actually influences those doctors in their moral issues. Even though a lot of medical school forced them to take an abortion uh, you know, um, uh, you know, sequence where they're taught how to basically do an abortion, um, you know, they have no intention of doing these things uh, once they are certified and so forth and so on. They just have to be a witness to it uh, while they're going through. So, uh, um, you know, you can be a witness to it and not do it. And so uh, that's uh, we can see that this is happening across the board, too. So, you know, the Lord is very crafty, you know, and he can, he, you know, just when you think it's looking too bad to be overcome, he's got about 15 things going on that are popping out of the woodwork. And I'm just hoping I'm one of his crafty things. Uh, you know, at the Modular Center there and Sophia Institute for Teachers and trying to put together this curriculum. Father, that's really great information. I, I know that uh, a lot of the teachers and administrators uh, that are the majority of our audience are going to be very interested in uh, going to uh, those sites and looking those uh, that information up. Father, thank you so much for being with us today on Follow to Lead. Now, uh, Magis Center is found at what uh, what email or internet address? Yeah, it's magiscenter.com. Okay, and the Sophia Institute is? It's Sophia Institute for Teachers.org, I believe. But if okay. you just put Sophia Institute for Teachers, it'll come right up. And just go to the very front page of uh, Sophia Institute for Teachers. It just says, you know, um, you know, Father Spitzer's Magis Sophia Curriculum on um, Catholic faith and science. And then you can actually go through a sample, um, uh, you know, looks at it. And um, those 20 videos I just mentioned, um, they're almost ready. We're just finishing up the graphics and the B-roll right now. And we're loading them onto both the Sophia Institute website and our Magis Institute website. And so um, uh, the... uh, uh, if they are enrolled in Catholic faith and science, they can get uh, a passcode for the whole school. 
and you can just use those videos, download those videos, do anything you want with those videos. Um, so that might be, you know, just the starter thing is just to show the kids the videos, you right. know, and then, you know, to do the course is really, that's when you get the maximum results. That's where you create the next generation of leaders. Uh, one of the things I'm excited about is that you're going to be one of our keynote speakers at the upcoming Duke and Altum Summit in Washington mm -hmm. on October 16th through 18th. And I believe you're going to be kind of addressing a lot of these same issues as far as how to really help young people to manage faith and science and those types of things. So we're really excited that you're going to be with us. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm excited to be there, too. And of course, I love Washington, D.C. in October. So uh, it it's, should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for more information also about the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, please visit our website at diaschools.org. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow our podcast and be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programs. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.